It's a joy and a privilege to be with you dear folks. I never could have imagined myself being the southerner that I am, that I would be in a context like this speaking one day. Uh, but nonetheless, let me encourage you, if you've brought with you this morning God's Word, to turn with me in it to the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah and the 15th chapter. I'm sorry, the 57th chapter, Isaiah 57. And I want to read, hopefully if I can get my readers, I want to read from the first 15 verses, and then I want to focus on verse 15 here for our text. So if you would, hear the word of the true and living God as it comes to us from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 57, beginning with verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his own uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They... They are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. And behind the doors and their, their post you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your words, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God 
shall stand forever. Let's pray for the ministry of the word. And if you would be so kind as I lead us audibly to pray with and for me that God would be a blessing to us from his word this day. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in your presence, acknowledging that we are but poor creatures of the dust. Moreover, moreover, O God, we are fallen creatures. We have sinned and rebelled against you. And yet, in your love and mercy, you have been pleased to draw us unto yourself into the embrace of your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how we give thanks for him this day. We thank you for his gospel. We thank you, Father, for the reality of the new birth, that you're able to make men and women, boys and girls, into new creatures, into Jesus Christ. Father, as we would consider such a small portion of your word this day, I ask that you would be pleased to, to neutralize all of the deficiencies of your servant. And Father, that you would be pleased to do what no mere preacher can do, namely, to take this your blessed word and bring it home to all of our pouts with hearts with power and authority from above. And we ask you to do this, O oh God, not because we deserve it, and surely not because we could ever merit such a mercy, but we ask you to do it on the basis of who Christ is and what he has accomplished in his doing and his dying and his rising again from the dead. So we offer our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't think it's possible for someone with a very active mind to read, sit down and to read through the prophecy of Isaiah without being impressed by the richness of the language of this Old Testament prophecy as well as by the beauty of the imagery that he sets before us page after page. And indeed, in many respects, the prophecy of Isaiah is in itself a literary masterpiece. But here in chapter 57, our prophet, as you'll notice from the beginning with verse 1, continues his oracle of rebuke against the hypocrisy and the idolatry of his people. It began with verse 9 in the previous chapter, chapter 56. And it is indeed, as one theologian put it, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah that he might strike hypocrites with dread and horror so that they might not exalt themselves by vain confidence or freely indulge their sinful inclinations under the pretense of these promises that God had made to the righteous of his people. Now it is in the midst of this particular rebuke and threatened judgment that the prophet gives us this majestic statement of verse 15, revealing to us something of the identity of the God of Israel in terms of a number of his divine attributes. Now to be sure, throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, we find him time and time again giving us many different descriptions of the God of Israel. He speaks of him as judge, as lawgiver, as king, as the suffering servant of Yahweh, chapter 53. But I want for us to look closely this morning at the description concerning the nature of God that we find here in verse 15 of Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one, this is how God describes himself, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place 
with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now then, one of the most telling commentaries, I think, on human nature is the fact that all too often a man's thoughts concerning God never rise any higher than himself. And I'm going to be making reference often this morning in terms of what we might call the generic we. And though I'm going to be speaking generically of the human race when I use the word we, I think it will be helpful for us to consider whether or not the generic we is descriptive or characteristic of us in particular. Because apart from the grace of Almighty God, that which is true of men in general can be true of you and me in particular as in our dark or our weaker moments apart from Christ. But far too often, a man's thoughts concerning God never rise any higher than himself. We as men and women of the human race, we like to entertain thoughts about God. We often like to talk about God. We like to discuss God. Some of us, perhaps from time to time, have even cussed God. But all too often, our thoughts about God never rise any higher than ourselves. We often entertain ourselves concerning this high mystery of God. After all, who among us isn't enamored or intrigued by a particular mystery? But for some of us, it's really not a mystery any longer. Why? Because the generic we, we've got God all figured out. And uh, we've solved the riddle. We've put all the pieces of the puzzle together and we think we understand it all. And what have we done? Well, in contrast to what the prophet is telling us here in Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 57, we've turned the whole thing around. And all too often, we may not think that we have, but all too often, we have set ourselves up as judge and jury, and we sit in judgment of God and who He is. And in all of our fanciful notions and all of our vain speculations, instead of hearkening to the voice of God as He reveals Himself in Holy Scripture, we, the human race, well, we have removed God from His high and lofty place described of him here. And we have subpoenaed him into the courtroom of human judgment that we might give our own verdict as to the identity of God, who he is with respect to his nature and his character. This is why the theologian John Calvin said that the human nature is a is a perpetual, is a factory of making perpetual idols. The heart is such a factory. Now then, I think it's important that we all need to understand that often when we begin to think of God apart from Holy Scripture, we begin to construct a God with whom we can all be comfortable uh, usually he's a God who demands very little of us, is he not? Indeed, a God with whom we can all like and get along with, like a pal or a buddy. And like the ancient Israelites, after having grown weary of waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain with the oracles of heaven, we, as they did, decide to make for ourselves a God after our own image. And for we've grown weary of waiting on the God of the Bible, and uh, we too form a God into our own likeness and image. He's a God who always makes us happy, and uh, He never makes us sad. He's a God everybody likes, because He's a God we can disregard and ignore 
when we want. He's a God with whom we can toy and whom we can play. Uh, A God whom we can laugh at and mock. He's a God whom we can listen to when we want. And He's a God whom we can turn off when we don't. He's a God who says, you can come to church if you want to, and you can stay home if you don't. (laughs) And so we make such a God. He's a nice, convenient God. And He's a God who never gets in our way because he's never offended by anything we do. He's a God who requires absolutely nothing of us. And that's why we love him so. If you're familiar with sermon audio on the web, I encourage you to go and listen to the sermon of an old Baptist preacher by the name of Rolf Barnard. He's got a sermon, and the sermon is titled, The God Nobody's Mad At. (laughs) I encourage you to go to Sermon Audio and listen to that sermon. It's a wonderful sermon. You see, the only thing that's wrong with the God that I've just described is that he is a man-made God. He is a false God. He is an idol. And the apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4 that an idol is what? That an idol is a zilch. That an idol is nothing. It's a zero. And one of the saddest commentaries, I think, on the Christian church today in general is that God has become, as it were, a stranger in his own house. He is unknown for who he really is. And Jeremiah the prophet witnessed the same thing in his own day as he began to weep and to say, Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in the time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Israel had turned from the true and living God to the worship of idols. And God even told Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Do not pray for this people. Do not pray for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry, he says. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. You may recall from the first chapter of his prophecy when Isaiah spoke of this deplorable state of the nation of Israel in his day. It could well describe the church in many places in our day where God, speaking through his prophet, said, I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But my people, Israel, do not know. They do not consider. People have mixed up notions today, even within the doors of a Christian church, as to who God is. And we've lost the sense of the fear of the God of the Bible. Because when you begin to see and to understand something of who the God of the Bible is, you have every reason to fear Him in the right sense. We learn from Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul, he arrives there for the very first time in the city of Athens. And he tells us that his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was completely given over to idolatry. The people in their superstition, all of them together, learned and unlearned alike, were given over to idolatry. And in this superstition born out of ignorance, they had with their other gods even erected this altar to 
the unknown God. And using that act as a point of contact, the Apostle Paul, he then took the occasion to say this, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And he proceeded to make known to them the true and the living God. But now here in verse 15 of Isaiah 57, God himself is speaking in our text and he's making himself known. And he identifies himself through his prophet as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and his name is holy. Those are three of God's attributes I would like for us to look at this morning. Here he declares that the high and lofty one will condescend, will come down to dwell with the lowly, and with the humble. Indeed, he tells us that this great and glorious God, this God who is far above his creation in terms of who he is, is the high, exalted, and holy one, is nonetheless pleased to receive into his company and to enter into covenant with his creation. And he reveals to us his design, indeed his purpose for doing so, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, dear people, that is gospel. That is good news that God would desire fellowship with such as the likes of us. That's good news. Who would have thought it? Who would have even imagined it? It's the wonder of the gospel that this high and lofty God against whom we've rebelled and from whom we are estranged by nature, this God whom we have provoked to anger by our sins desires fellowship and communion with those who have made themselves his enemies. Think of the high and lofty magnitude of such love for sinful rebel creatures. Think about how you're driving down the road and someone cuts in your way or nearly misses you, makes you slam on your brakes to avoid an accident. What's your thoughts towards your fellow creature on such an occasion? God loves sinners. Can you, can you begin to imagine such a reality? He loves sinners. The Apostle Paul underscores this very reality in Romans 5, verses 7 through 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, Someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Surely such a God commends, commands my attention. And in answer to the question, who is God? Who is this God? Notice with me, first of all, he identifies himself through the prophet with this description. He is the high and the lofty one. God identifies himself in terms of his exaltation over his creation. He is the transcendent God who dwells above and beyond creation. Elsewhere in his prophecy, Isaiah, he points to the heavens and he declares, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like what? They're like grasshoppers before him who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. In the 66th chapter of his prophecy, Isaiah speaks there, and God says through the mouth of his prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. 
There is, to be sure, a great distance between God and us. But we must not begin to think that such language leads us to believe that God overlooks or despises the affairs of men in any way. Quite to the contrary. He rules over the earth from His throne in heaven. The note struck by the psalmist in the 103rd Psalm in verse 19 The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Moreover, He is concerned with the salvation of men. We read in Holy Scripture that He draws near to the poor and to the lowly in heart. The psalmist reminds us, though the Lord is high, yet He regards the lowly. The 138th Psalm, verse 6. But the problem with us is that we're so prone to measure God in our own sense of standards. We tend to form and frame our ideas, our conceptions of Him from the factory of our own nature rather than His Word. But all of our understanding as to who God is, if it's to be true, it must be drawn from the revelation He has made of Himself to us in Holy Scripture. The Scriptures alone. God has disclosed to us His identity and what He requires of us in Holy Scripture. What are the two principal things that the Scriptures teach us? Number one, who God is. And number two, the duty He requires of us. Third and question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. You may recall this if you're familiar with the Westminster Standards. It says, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And this is one of the reasons why Isaiah directs God's people to seek Him in chapter 8 and verse 20 in these words, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light or there is no dawn in them. Do you remember the example of Pharaoh from the Old Testament book of Exodus? God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response to God was what? Pharaoh's response was, God who? God who? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And God in essence says, oh, you'll let my people go, all right. All you need is just a few visual aids and we'll take care of your problem. And so God says in essence to Pharaoh, I'm about to give you a crash course on my identity. And so God uh, lays it out before him in 11 quick lessons. We'll call it the 10 plagues plus the Red Sea plunge. And uh, when the course is over, you'll know something about the God with whom you're dealing. And those of us who are old enough to remember him would say with Paul Harvey, Mel Pharaoh knows the rest of the story. Or what about the biblical account of Sennacherib? That's right here in the very prophecy of Isaiah itself. Uh, Sennacherib, he was an Assyrian king. You may have read about this. It's I think it's in 2 Kings 18 and 19. You have the account of it in 2 Chronicles 32. But you also have the account of it right here in Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 36 and 37. But here's Sennacherib, and he's the Assyrian king. And uh, like many ungodly despots, he has this high and exalted opinion of himself, his own power and might. And 
So he marches right up to the gates of the city of Jerusalem and he sends his messenger, Reshechem, to deliver his message. And so Reshechem comes. He doesn't speak to King Hezekiah. No, he bypasses uh, Hezekiah because that was something of uh, insult to do that. And so he bypasses addressing himself to Hezekiah, who is the king, and he just hollers over the wall to the people. And he hollers to them in their own native Hebrew tongue so that all the people there could hear and understand the threat. It was a tactic that was calculated to strike fear and horror into the hearts of the Hebrew people within Jerusalem and create unrest among their ranks. And his message was this. He said, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from the king of Assyria's hand. Now let Hezekiah... Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then they begin to boast, like all the ungodly do. You remember that one city after another had fallen in the path of the army of the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And then Roshakta begins to, he's telling the Hebrews about those victories when he says, we're the gods of Hamath and Arpad. We're the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hands that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, Sennacherib's problem was, He didn't have a clue as to who the God of Israel really was. And he made the fatal mistake of comparing the true and living God with the gods of other cities like Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva. Their gods were idols. And he thought that the Lord God of Israel was simply another powerless idol. Now then, If Pharaoh got the crash course, Sennacherib is about to get the super-duper crash course. It pleased God to take only one night to get his message across. And before the sun rose the next morning, 185,000 of the Assyrian troops lay dead. Cutting down, according to the account given to us in 2 Chronicles 32, cutting down every mighty man of valor, and so humbled Sennacherib that he turned tail and went back to Nineveh. The British poet, Lord Byron, he wrote a poem that recounted the destruction of the army of Sennacherib It's rather fascinating. Listen to how he describes the destruction of Sennacherib. He says, The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen on their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strong. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers grew deadly and chill. Their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with its nostril all wide, but through it there flowed not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay wide on the turf, as wide as the foam of the rock-beating surf. 
And there lay the rider distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail, and the tents were all silent, the banners alone. The lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their well, and their idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. That's just how powerful the God of Israel is. The true and living God is the high and lofty one. And he knows how to make himself respected by those who do not know him. But then secondly, not only does God identify himself in terms of his exalted transcendence, but in answer to the question, who is God? He describes himself also as the one who inhabits eternity. Thus underscores not only his exaltation over creation, but his transcendence over us in terms of his eternality. Whereas we are finite creatures, you and I, bound and subject to the vicissitudes of time as finite creatures, God transcends time because He inhabits eternity. The confession of Moses in the 98th Psalm is, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you our God. God inhabits, that is, He lives, He dwells in the realm of eternity. Those of us who lived through the 1960s, who are old enough to remember those days, can well remember the spawning, the beginning of that infamous slogan, God is dead, people were saying, God is dead. And a group of so-called theologians say, got together, deliberated, and uh, they decided that God must be dead. So the message they began to spread is God is dead. Well, their God was dead because He was a God made in their own image. And He was likewise subject to the mutability of time-bound creatures. You see, their God did die, but not the God of the Bible not the God of the Bible. He is as He has always been, from everlasting to everlasting, He is God, because He is the God who inhabits eternity. Let me paraphrase the old Puritan Thomas Manton. He said, time writes no wrinkle on the brow of the eternal. God is not subject to the vicissitudes of time. His intentions remain the same. His purposes are fixed. His promises are steadfast. Forever, O Lord, is your word settled in heaven, is the psalmist reminder to us. Moreover, His mercy to His people knows no end. The hymns and the anthems of the psalm sound the notes of this praise unceasingly over and over again throughout the Psalms that God's mercy endures forever. We find it in the 106th Psalm, the 107th Psalm, the 138th Psalm. We find it twice over in the 89th Psalm. We find it five times in the 118th Psalm. And we find it no less than 26 times In the 136th Psalm, His mercy endures forever. Given the uncertainties with which you and I live in our day, we need a God like that. A God whose love for us can never change, can never diminish whatsoever with the passing of time. Who among us this morning Can we begin to imagine, shall we say, the dimensions of eternity? I don't think it's possible for us to do that as finite creatures. 
And that's why we sing, swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O Lord, who changes not, abide with me. There can be no greater comfort in life and death than to know that the one who inhabits eternity dwells also in time with you and with me. Do you know this God this morning? Do you know this God who has condescended to us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might dwell with us and us with him for all eternity? Let me ask you this question this morning. What is there, and I want you to put your thinking cap on, what is there about you right now that bears no explanation, indeed defies any other explanation, but that God in Jesus Christ has made you a new creature. You notice I didn't ask you if you ever prayed the certain prayer or if you made the certain confession. I'm talking about a change in your life, that transformation of the new birth makes. What is there about you right now that bears no explanation, indeed defies any other possible explanation, but that God in Jesus Christ has made you a new creation? I tell you what you can look for. One of the greatest books to go look for the description of the new birth is John's first epistle. He uses this phrase some five times in his epistle, by this you know, by this you know, by this you know. And then he says, if you confess this, then such and such will follow. And he gives us one example after another, how we can know that we're new creatures in Christ. My friend, if you don't know for sure, go to 1 John and read it and see if the things he describes are true of you. But then thirdly and finally, I want for us to notice an answer to the question, who is God? Not only his transcendence in terms of his exaltation over us, his transcendence as expressed by his inhabiting eternity. For he goes on to say, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And addressing the question, who is God? we commonly make reference to his attributes, his characteristics, his qualities, as I had been this morning. We describe God by making reference to these great attributes, these qualities ascribed to him throughout the scriptures. There are many. Holiness is one of them. As a matter of fact, some, matter of fact, some people, and not a few of them, I might add, suggests that while it is certainly true that God is, generally speaking, not more one thing than he is another, that is not more just than he is good or wise than he is kind, but nonetheless, when it comes to the characteristic of holiness, we're dealing, they say, with a very different kind of attribute. James Henley Thornwell, he was, I suppose, one of the greatest of the Southern Presbyterian theologians and educators and preachers who grew up in the 19th century. He fell into the category of those who spoke in this way, as well as the great B.B. Warfield. And these folks say that holiness is the quintessential, the greatest attribute of God. It's a kind of summary attribute which carries in itself the substance of all the other divine attributes. And I suppose that view has a has much that can be said in terms of favor for it. But I tend, humbly I trust, because these are good men, but I tend to think 
that they're mistaken because I don't think that the scriptures teach us that God is any more one thing than he is another, that he's any more righteous or good or loving or kind or gracious. But I'll tell you this, it is certainly true to say that the song of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, a song, song sung repeatedly by creatures unlike us have never even known the stain or defilement of sin. Nonetheless, cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that points us in a very important direction. After all, what is God's holiness? Very quickly, for one thing, God's holiness speaks to us of his apartness, of his separateness from us. He is, after all, God in the beginning. He uttered the first word, let there be, and there was. Everything that is sprang into existence when he spoke that creative word and formed the universe out of nothing. So he's not of the universe, therefore he's not to be identified with the world. There's a vast unbridgeable chasm between eternity and time. He who is above all eternity, above all time. Indeed, there's a chasm there between eternity and time that can only be bridged and has been bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But holiness is more than simply God's apartness. It's more than his separateness. It also speaks to us of God's moral purity. That God is clean. In Him is purity. Pure purity. And infinitely so. God is light, John said. And in Him is no darkness at all. No wonder the seraphim cry as they do. And no wonder when we come, you and I, to have even so much as a glimpse of the purity and the holiness of God, we, like Isaiah, begin to tremble and to be afraid. And we say, woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the Lord. And then think of the implication of all of this, because the Lord says, the Holy One says, the one separated from us says, the one without blemish and imperfection says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That takes it to a brand new place as a believer in Christ. Are you walking in obedience to God? Are you living a holy life? Dear folk, we do well to ask the question, who is God? And I fear that far too many professing Christians today prefer to approach God on some kind of middle ground that is neither lofty for God nor lowly for them. But God never dwells on middle ground. And the truth of the matter as I close is this, is no one ever meets God on middle ground. No one does. And His very transcendence in terms of His exaltedness, His eternality, and His holiness renders Him mysterious to us. Without controversy, declared Paul, great is the mystery of godliness. He's altogether different from us. He is transcendently exalted, unchangeably eternal, and He is perfectly holy. But I want to tell you in closing what the greatest mystery of all is to me. And it's this. Is that this same God whom Isaiah is describing for us here so candidly goes on to say, I dwell in the high and holy place with who? With him who has a contrite 
and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You see, the wonder of wonders to me is that though he is so different from us, yet he has become one with us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to dwell with us, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And though he is transcendently exalted over us, and though he lives by the power of an endless life, according to the writer to the Hebrews, and though he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, it is nonetheless true that as the Lamb of God enfleshed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, He came into this world to die for us, for such as the likes of you and me. And if you're here today and you're a stranger to Jesus Christ, He stands before you in the gospel right now and He invites, him, he invites you to Himself. He invites you to himself. If you're sitting here this morning, perhaps with the burden of the world bending you down and the weight of your own sin and misery, while you feel the emptiness of your own soul and your soul cries out, give me an answer to the mystery of God. Jesus Christ summons you to himself. He's saying, I'm the answer for every need that you have. Sad thing is, sometimes we think we have needs that we do not need. But Jesus Christ stands before you in the gospel and he meets the needs of helpless sinners. And that's what we are. As one man said, it's a beggar begging for bread. And we beg for bread from the Lord Jesus Christ, but he gives to everyone who begs of him. May God be pleased to make us all beggars of Christ, that we might fall before him, that we might encourage ourselves to flee to him, my friend, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, run to him this morning. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I don't know how. Tell God you don't know how. And God will tell you how. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, how we give thanks for this your holy and infallible word. We thank you for the prophecy of Isaiah. We thank you for the way that he speaks to us in such a straightforward way and certainly so candidly. Father, I pray that his word would be an encouragement to all of us this day. And we ask that you'd be pleased to seal your word to our hearts to the fruit of your glory and to the good of our never-dying souls, and we plead it in Jesus' name. Amen.